I just want to note here that this sermon series um, is intentionally named the message of the 12, not the messages of the 12. Because it's been noted throughout the series so far, there really is one consistent message throughout the Minor Prophets, what we refer to as the melodic line, if you will, a message of sin, judgment, and hope. Well, that brings us to the book we're going to be looking at this morning, the book of Nahum. And this book is no different with one subtlety, that similarly to Obadiah, which, uh, which Julian preached a few weeks ago, although the primary content of the book of Nahum is that of judgment, the primary message is one of hope. So Nahum is addressing the people of Judah at a time when the northern kingdom of Israel had already been, been conquered by the Assyrians, and the people of Judah themselves were being in many ways oppressed and exploited by the Assyrians. This message, or this oracle as he calls it, foretells the utter destruction of Nineveh, which is the capital city for and a representation of Assyria. And the message is intended to bring hope to the people of Judah. Hope that their God, pictured as a victorious warrior and righteous judge, would deliver them. Would you pray with me again as we dive in? So Father, speak to us through your word this morning, through the prophet Nahum. Open the eyes of our hearts, Lord, to see more of who you are, to see more of your goodness as we sung about, and your justice, and your mercy, and your grace. And Father, do this all for your glory and for our good. Amen. Okay, so the book of Nahum, this book, as he said, is a prophecy, or more accurately, as he refers to it, an oracle of Nahum of Elkosh. And now not much is known about uh, Nahum. In fact, we know almost nothing other than his name which means compassion or comfort, which is kind of ironic considering his penchant for declaring the coming of the wrath of the Lord. However, as I mentioned earlier, it makes perfect sense when considering that the wrath he's foretelling is to be brought on the enemies of Judah and provide deliverance for them. I mean, even when it says Nahum of Elkosh doesn't really help because scholars basically have no idea what or where Elkosh was. Um, okay, so what about when Nahum's ministry occurred? Well, Nahum, throughout the book, he refers to a couple um, historic events. He talks about the fall of the Egyptian city of Thebes, and his entire prophecy is foretelling the fall of Nineveh. And these are things we can date. So we know that he was writing sometime between these events. And there's other hints as well that help us kind of narrow it down to have confidence that this book was written sometime between about 650 and 663 BC. And all that to say, the reason the timing is important of this oracle is because of its connection to a book James walked us through um, earlier, a connection to the book of, Na or of, of Jonah, pardon me. Does anyone hear like sequels? Well, Nahum is in a way a sequel to the book of Jonah. And there's a long history of terrible sequels in Hollywood, you know, movies that fail to live up to the high standard of a beloved original. They, at best, you know, they don't hold up to that standard. At worst, completely taint and tarnish the memory of it. Well, as far as Nineveh and the Assyrians are concerned, Nahum would be considered a pretty disappointing sequel for them, following the, book, or following the events of the book of Jonah. Because as you recall from the book of Jonah, the prophet was tasked with taking a message of repentance and mercy to Nineveh. The people of Nineveh did repent and receive mercy, and for a time, they were spared the judgment of the Lord because of their repentance. However, a relatively short period of time later, Nahum was likely written about 150 years after the events of Jonah. The people of Nineveh had fallen back into their sinful ways completely, become marked with pride again, and now the prophet Nahum appears to tell of their pending destruction. So Jonah and Nahum sort of bookend each other, the first telling of God's love and mercy, 
and the second warning of his justice and wrath. All right, so with that background, let's get to the text. The book of Nahum is divided into two sections. The first section, which we just read, um, it was the first half of what we read, chapter 1, verses 2 to 8, is more broad and, well, almost eschatological in nature, outlining God's judgment reserved for all who oppose him. While the remainder of the book um, is a little more political or nationalistic, dealing specifically with uh, Assyria and Judah as nations. And it's an important distinction to make between these two sections because for us to properly understand the judgment described against Nineveh and Nahum, we need to understand that this judgment is just an example or a proxy of God's judgment that will be delivered against all who oppose him at the end of the age. This brings much broader context to, under, to our understanding of the message of Nahum than simply the Lord destroying Judah's particular oppressor at a particular point in time. The destruction of Nineveh is a symbol and a warning to God's enemies throughout the ages, a warning of the judgment to come. And similarly, the book of Nahum serves as a reminder to God's people throughout the ages of his great deliverance as well. So with that in mind, let's talk about Nahum chapter 1. Let's look at verse 2, okay? Talk about beginning with a bang. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. Here we see descriptions in this one verse alone, jealous, avenging, and wrathful. Well, the passage continues in verse 3. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. And this highlights the tension we're meant to feel throughout this book, especially as we talked about coming out of the book of Jonah and the history of Nineveh prior to the book of Nam. The tension between God's wrath and his deliverance, between his justice and his mercy. Nahum highlights this tension by reminding his readers that although God is angry and wrathful, he's slow to anger. However, although he is willing to put his anger off for a time, Nahum reminds the Judeans in no uncertain terms that the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. Slow to anger and by no means clear the guilty. These phrases should be familiar to many of us. They certainly would have been to the Judean readers at the time. These were phrases that were meant to invoke memories in the Judean readers of both Yahweh's deliverance of the Israelites from Egypt and importantly, his mercy towards them in showing restraint after they turned to their idolatrous worship of the golden calf in Exodus 34. Why am I highlighting this here? Well, because this is actually a very important tie-in to the theme of Nahum, the theme of deliverance. I mean, do you remember this story? Do you remember the deliverance of the Exodus from Egypt? It's one of the most remarkable stories, maybe in the entire Bible. The Lord miraculously delivering the Israelites through the plagues and the changing of Pharaoh's heart, then the parting of the Red Sea to deliver his people on dry ground, and then the closing of the waters to swallow up the Egyptian chariots. It's pretty incredible, right? And what do we see after that? The Israelites grumbling about bitter water, and the Lord makes it sweet for them to drink. The Israelites grumbling about being hungry. The Lord literally rains bread from heaven and provides quail on the ground for them to eat. Oh, they're thirsty again? Well, now this time the Lord gives them water from a rock. Over and over, the Lord delivers his people. Then what do we see in the story? Then Moses goes up Mount Sinai, and the Lord gives him the law. But wait, the Israelites think. He's, he's taking just a bit too long for us, they decide. It's been, it's been, what, just over a month? So think about that, 40 days, just over a month, 
after what we had just gotten over, how the Lord had delivered them in such miraculous ways, in just over a month. And the Israelites have not only apparently forgotten about God's deliverance, but worse than that, they've actually implored Moses' brother Aaron to make them a golden calf as an idol in order for them to attribute their deliverance to instead of Yahweh himself. And that's the context for Exodus 32, verses 7 to 10. I want to read here. Let's read this together. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people, whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore, let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation of you. Did you hear that? God's wrath was burning against his own people to the degree that he was willing to destroy them and start a new people from Moses. And of course, we know in the story that Moses intercedes for the people of Israel and the Lord relents. And it's in the context of that relenting that we come to the passage that Nahum is evoking here with the, or with the expressions I referenced earlier. This is from Exodus 34 now, verses 5 to 7. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So this, this right here, this is the memory that Nahum is intending to spark in the Judean readers of his oracle. And why is that important? Well, it's important because, um, sorry, because at the very beginning of Nahum's prophecy, pardon me, sorry, just lost my spot here. Sorry, yes. Why is that important? Because this reminder to the people of Judah at the very beginning of Nahum's prophecy that the Lord is slow to anger is meant to remind the Israelites that but for the mercy of God, the wrath about to be detailed in his oracle would have already been poured out on them. It's meant to remind them of what they themselves have already been delivered from and give them hope that the Lord would deliver them again. And that brings me to my first point, that God is capable of great wrath. And this is perhaps an uncomfortable truth, but it is a truth uh, the Bible teaches nonetheless. And perhaps it's uncomfortable to us because we can relate to the Israelites and it frightens us to think that perhaps his wrath could burn against us as it did against the Israelites when time after time we do what is right in our own eyes. Yet when we read Nahum, his wrath is inescapable. We've already discussed verse 2. Let's keep going here to verses 5 and 6 in chapter 1. The mountains quake before him, the hills melt, the earth heaves before him, the world and all who dwell in it who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. 
Again, this is not yet directed at the Ninevites specifically. It's not merely describing his anger towards them. That's reserved for later in the book. These verses describe the world and all who dwell in it. But he does turn his focus to the Ninevites. So turn with me to the end of chapter 2. This is a chapter dedicated to describing the destruction of Nineveh. Look at verse 13 with me. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will burn your chariots in smoke, and the sword shall devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the earth, and the voice of your messengers shall no longer be heard. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. This must be one of the most terrifying things we could hear, no? I mean, it's got to be up there. Spurgeon speaks of it this way, of the, of the Lord being against you. He says, and whenever that is the case, a man does not need any other adversary. If God be against you, oh, my dear hearer, what will become of you? Though you should have all the power in the world and possess robust health, abundant riches, and keen wit, what can you do against God? I am against thee, saith Jehovah of hosts. He throws down the gauntlet to Nineveh. What a warning. But you may say, okay, perhaps this, this wrath we're talking about here isn't so controversial. Perhaps it's, you know, just stoic, righteous anger. And, and maybe you're tempted to think that when we speak about wrath or anger, we're simply describing God's just punishment for sin and think of it kind of transactionally, like a prison sentence. Well, make no mistake, we're certainly talking about no less than that. But when we continue in chapter 3, we see much more than that. You see, the second part of chapter 1 informs of Nineveh's coming destruction. Chapter 2 describes the pending destruction. But when we come to chapter 3, well, in chapter 3, Nahum describes and seems almost giddy in describing the utter humiliation that Nineveh will suffer in her destruction. Read with me from uh, chapter 3, verses 5 to 8. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts, and will lift up your skirts over your face, and I will make nations look at your nakedness and kingdoms at your shame. I will throw filth at you and treat you with contempt and make you a spectacle, and all who look at you will shrink from you and say, Wasted is Nineveh, who will grieve for her? Where shall I seek comforters for you? Again, in verse 5, we hear this same grave statement that the Lord is against Nineveh. He then proceeds to detail fairly graphically how the Lord will humiliate the Ninevites. He says, I will lift up your skirts over your face and make nations look at your nakedness and kingdoms at your shame. The Lord is going to expose them in front of the nations. Or what about later on in verses 17 to 19? It says, your princes are like grasshoppers, your scribes like clouds of locusts settling on the fence in a day of cold. When the sun rises, they flee away. No one knows where they are. Your shepherds are asleep, O king of Assyria. Your nobles slumber. Your people are scattered on the mountains with none to gather them. There is no easing your hurt. Your wound is grievous. All who hear the news about you clap their hands over you. For upon whom has not come your unceasing evil. You hear that in verse 19? All who hear the news about you clap their hands over you. Again, the Lord through Nahum is rubbing it in almost, so to speak, how deeply Nineveh will be put to shame in front of the world and how, <clears throat> how all those who hear about her destruction will celebrate. 
So what are we saying here? Yes, the Lord's wrath is certainly just and certainly a result of his righteous anger. But we also see that it is wrath or anger with extreme prejudice. This book doesn't describe a stoic, unemotional, detached God simply meeting out a a prescribed punishment for a violation of his law, like a parking ticket. No, we see a jealous, angry God looking to bring judgment and to utterly put to shame those who so flagrantly act in opposition to God and his people. What did chapter 1, verse 3 tell us again? He will by no means clear the guilty. Even the most egregious sinners may go unpunished for a time, but make no mistake, their time will come. The Lord will not clear the guilty. Well, now that we've established that God is capable of great wrath, and that his wrath burns against those who oppose him and his people, let's move on to point two. That God is capable of great wrath because he is love. There can be a tendency at times, I think, to be okay with kind of viewing the God of the Old Testament as wrathful and angry because of books like Nahum and others uh, that paint such a clear picture of God's wrath. But somehow to view the God of the New Testament as loving and tender and then pit these two views of God against each other as if God somehow evolved in between. I'd argue that perhaps even so consciously, there could be a tendency amongst those of us who believe in the immutability or unchanging nature of God to give lip service to God being the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, but functionally to hold to the view that God is somehow loving now in a way that he wasn't always or, um, or somehow no longer capable of wrath in a way that he used to be. Well, I want to take the next few minutes to push back against this view. And I want to tear down this notion that God being love and God having wrath are at odds with each other. In fact, I want to argue almost the complete opposite. That there is a distinct, direct, positive correlation between one's capacity for love and one's capacity for wrath. And what I mean by that is this, is if you picture a graph, okay, you got an X and Y axis and one being love and one being wrath measured in equal units along the axes. Well, the line reflecting their relationship would start right in the corner and continue on upwards in a perfectly diagonal direction. They'd be perfectly correlated. That's to say, necessarily, as one's capacity for love increases, so too is one's capacity for wrath. So what does that mean for a God who isn't only capable of love, but a God who is love? Well, it means he's capable of infinite wrath. And this might sound a little uncomfortable, but don't we kind of instinctively understand this to be true? Listen, I'm a husband and a father, and if someone were to hurt my wife or my children, and I'm like in a violent way, what would you expect my reaction to be? If you're a husband and a father, and someone threatened or hurt your wife and children, what would your reaction be? Well, man, I trust we all have a similar reaction. We'd be angry, wouldn't we? Maybe even righteously angry, even. We, depending on the severity, we might even want blood instinctively. We'd certainly want justice. Are you following me here? Now, what would it say about us as husbands and fathers or as men, or as Christians for that matter, if we didn't, if that wasn't our response, it certainly wouldn't make us more loving. In fact, our lack lack of wrath would reveal that our hearts were actually indifferent because indifference towards someone can't evoke wrath. If I'm indifferent about someone, they can't be used to provoke me to anger. But when we love someone, well, the greater our love for someone, the greater our capacity for wrath. So what would that tell us about a God without wrath? Well, that would be an indifferent God. And certainly not the God of the Bible. 
One commentator puts it this way, to believe in his love is to be sure of his wrath. Matt Chandler puts it in even stronger terms. He says, to say God has no wrath is an assault on his love. Okay, what does the Bible tell us about the relationship between God's love and God's wrath? Turn with me to 1 John chapter 4. Let's read verses 7 to 10. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. If you've been a Christian or attending church for any significant period of time, this is likely a familiar passage to you. And it's a beautiful passage. It reminds us of the greatest act of love in history. As Nick reminded us earlier, Jesus tells us that greater love has no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. If that's true, and it is, then what else can we call the very Son of God laying down his life for his enemies, but the greatest act of love in history? And what does this passage tell us about this act of love? It tells us that Jesus died to be the propitiation for our sins. That's a big word. What does it mean? Well, I looked it up in the Merriam-Webster Dictionary. And this is how the Merriam-Webster Dictionary defines propitiate. It says, to gain or regain the favor or goodwill of, to appease. Well, that sounds harmless enough, right? But wait, it expands further. Whereas appease implies quieting incessant demands by making concessions, kind of think like appeasing your hunger or appeasing your children. Propitiate suggests averting the anger or malevolence of a superior being. So when John tells us that Jesus was the propitiation for our sins, he's telling us that God's anger or wrath was directed at us. But Jesus, in his love, through his wrath-absorbing death, took on himself the penalty for our sin, and in so doing, averted, that's what we said, right? To avert the anger or malevolence of a superior being. He averted the wrath of God so that it is no longer directed at us. So that we go from being under wrath to becoming a new creation, adopted into God's family and co-heirs with Christ. He's made us his friend, again, as Nick reminded us. And we receive all the freedom, joy, hope, and peace that comes with that. And in that truth, we see my last point. That God, in his love, provides the deliverance from his wrath. Let's turn back to our passage in Nahum. Nahum chapter 1. Let's look at verse 7 now, okay? The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. He is a stronghold who knows those who take refuge in him. And this is certainly good news for those who take refuge. But what about those who don't take refuge in him? 
Well, before we get to how God provides deliverance from his wrath, let's back up and start with the fact that we need deliverance from his wrath in the first place. I mean, we just talked about this, right? If Jesus was our propitiation, then by definition, God's wrath was directed at us. I don't want to gloss over this. I need you to hear. If you're here today and you have not taken refuge in him, if you have not trusted Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins and received new life in him, then the most loving thing I can do for you is tell you that you are currently sitting under the wrath of God. That might be hard to hear, but this is what the word of God teaches us. The Apostle Paul teaches us in his letter to the Romans, first of all, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And then he tells us that the wages of sin is death. So in other words, we've all sinned, so we all deserve death. We all deserve God's wrath. But wait, you might think that maybe you don't need Jesus because you might say, well, I try to be a good person or I, I live a moral life. Well, the truth is, no, you don't. There is no such thing as a moral life apart from God and his law. You know what the Bible has to say about being a good person? The prophet Isaiah tells us that our good works are like filthy rags to God. Hear this, even our best attempts on our own to do good, not only are they insufficient to pay the penalty for our sin, they are actually insulting and disgusting to God. That's what we have to offer. That's what we have to bring, nothing. We are entirely dependent upon God for deliverance from the penalty of our sin, from his wrath. But <laughs> that's good news, or it should be. It should bring comfort to us the same way Nahum brought comfort to the people of Judah. We see this in two ways. First of all, let's get back to verse 7. We see that being dependent on God for salvation is good news because he's the only one able to save us. But not only is God able to deliver, he is willing to deliver. It says, the Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. Spurgeon has this to say about this verse. He says, here we come upon an island named Stormy Lake. All is calm in this verse, though the whole context is tossed with tempest. He compares Nahum's prophecy to a storm and presents this verse as a calm island in the midst of that storm. And with good reason, in the midst of life's storms, can there be greater comfort than to be known by God and protected by him? And all this in contrast, indeed, this verse is an island if you read through the entire book. All this in contrast to basically the entire rest of the book, which outlines the fate that awaits those who oppose him. We've read that the Lord is against them, Nahum tells us. But the Lord knows those who take refuge in him. Have you taken refuge in him? Are you known by God? Are you safe and secure within him? Is he your stronghold? Friends, he is able to deliver. He alone is able to deliver. And he is willing to deliver because he is good. And the second way I want to show that it's good news that we're dependent on God is by comparing Nahum to another book of the Bible. And we've already talked at the beginning about Jonah and Nahum and how they sort of bookend each other. Well, there's actually another book as well that in many ways is sort of a spiritual sister to Nahum, or to, to Nahum pardon me. And that's the book of Revelation. 
Daniel C. Timmer, an associate professor of Old Testament at Reformed Theological Seminary, says this of the relationship between Nahum and Revelation. If the fall of Assyria is grounds for joy, how much more is deliverance from God's ultimate judgment through the shelter that is God himself? The twin themes of sober joy over God's just punishment of the wicked and the exuberant celebration of his abundant grace in saving some through the sacrifice of his son appear regularly in Revelation, a book that has much in common with Nahum. After an opening vision into the heavens that overwhelms the reader with the outpouring of praise to the triune God for his salvation, the book reflects repeatedly on the deliverance of those saved from or through persecution and on the just punishment of God's enemies. The message of Revelation is essentially the message of Nahum restated in light of God's redemptive actions fully revealed now in Christ. So friends, do we see the joy and the hope that Nahum was meant to provide God's people? The hope of, their destru- of the destruction of their oppressors and the joy of God's deliverance from the penalty of their own sin? And when Timur says that Revelation is essentially the message of Nahum restated in light of God's redemptive actions fully revealed in Christ, do you see the hope and joy that that should bring us now? Do we see the hope and joy we should have in the deliverance from the penalty of our sin? And what great hope we have as God not only provides this deliverance, but he himself is our deliverance? God is our stronghold in the day of trouble. Now, before we leave Revelation, I want to briefly touch on something, and I trust you'll hear me the way I intend for you to hear me. I want to speak to those of you who claim the name of Christ already, which I presume is is the majority of us here. I want to talk to you about this because of what we've seen in our culture lately. Certainly, it's not particularly unique to our era, but it's just been so inescapable to me. I want to talk about apostasy. As I'm sure many of us are aware, there's been a fairly steady stream of relatively high-profile Christians publicly walking away from their faith. Some even high-profile church leaders or pastors. In some cases, this may have been after some sort of moral or leadership failing became exposed. But in many cases, people are simply choosing just to publicly and flagrantly leave the faith, even if they choose to couch it in terms like deconstruction. Many of them even identify with a sort of movement called being exvangelical. With that in mind, I want you to turn with me to Revelation chapter 14. We're going to read verses 9 to 11. What might be some of the most sobering verses in all of Scripture. Revelation 14, verse 9. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. These worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark in its name. Friends, God's wrath is real. It will be poured out on all who oppose him. God's ultimate judgment, as Timur calls it. And it will only be withheld from those who endure in the faith to the end. 
I want you to see this with me. I don't want you to think I'm making this up. So I want you to keep going to the next verse here. You know what immediately follows that harrowing description of the torment of God's wrath? Let's look at verse 12. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. This is no coincidence. The call to endure is a call to endure in order to avoid God's ultimate judgment that John had just described. We've talked about Jonah already. Well, again, what do we see happen with the Ninevites there in Jonah? What we see Nineveh repent and turn from its wicked ways after receiving the message from Jonah. This is important. The Ninevites, who we read about in Nahum, had a history of repentance. They had once received the message of God. But we see in Nahum, just a few generations later, that Nineveh had completely abandoned that repentance had turned away from God and re-embraced all its wicked ways. And they were destroyed for it. Now, I said at the outset of this point that I wanted you to hear me the way I intended to be heard. And I said that because I don't want to be heard as though I wanted you to constantly be doubting your faith or, or doubt the assurance of your salvation. I certainly don't want to be heard as implying that genuine believers can lose their salvation. That is not what I'm saying. Nothing could be further from the truth. My goal in all of this is to encourage you, brothers and sisters, to come along you as a coach, encourage you to press on and keep going. I love the way Tom Schreiner puts this in his commentary on 1 Corinthians. Here he's commenting on a passage where Paul is using a favorite analogy of his, uh, comparing the Christian life to running a race and enduring in that race as a means of imploring the Corinthian believers to persevere in their faith. And Schreiner says this, I suggest that the warnings and admonitions in the New Testament are one of the fundamental means used to preserve Christians in the faith. As believers respond to warnings, their assurance is not dampened, but deepened. The need to run the race to the end did not fill Paul with doubt or shake his confidence. Instead, the admonition to run the race stimulated him to continue in the faith. It bolstered his confidence that he would receive final salvation. Those who do not persevere reveal that they were not genuine. Thus, perseverance is the mark of a true believer. And so, brothers and sisters, I implore you, keep the faith, persevere, press on towards the goal, endure to the end. I'll close with this. The book of Nahum reminds us that God's wrath not only has been poured out on his enemies, but will be poured out on all those who oppose him. He must punish sin. It's in his very nature. And not just sin in general. He must punish your sin, and he must punish my sin. Indeed, who can stand before a righteous God? The Bible tells us there is no one righteous, not one. Yet despite this terrifying truth, we find great comfort in this, in the gospel. That he has already punished the sins of those who trust in him through Christ on the cross. So that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so for those of us who have trusted in Jesus, Nam should be a sobering but hopeful reminder Sorry, a reminder of the punishment and judgment that we have been delivered from through Jesus Christ. For those of us here or listening or watching at home who have not trusted in Jesus, 
Well, Nahum should be a sobering reminder of the wrath you're currently under. Hear these words. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. There's no neutral ground here. If you have not trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins and received new life in him, you are an enemy of God. Nahum offers no third category. There are those who find refuge in him, and there are those that are his enemies. And that's what makes the gospel of Jesus Christ such gloriously good news. Jesus has made a way not only for us to be delivered from the penalty of our sin, but in doing so has made a way for enemies of God to be brought near to him, to be made his friend, to be known by him and find refuge in him. So will you find your refuge in him today? Will you repent and place your trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sin? He's able and he is willing to provide this forgiveness and this deliverance. And it's only once you do that that you can truly experience the hope of Nahum's message. Let's pray.